Hey everyone, this is Tom Salami. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. This is episode 127. I literally just got off the line with Stan Rowe of NXT Biomedical. Uh, Stan is uh, leading a new effort with uh, the support of Deerfield to uh, create new technologies, create new companies, look at uh, early stage opportunities. And we're going to talk about that in the podcast today. But uh, Stan, of course, has a terrific career at uh, Edwards and, of course, the CEO of Percutaneous Valve Technologies. Talked a lot about uh, about his career, about his views on uh, engineering and uh, R&D. Really, really fascinating conversation. And uh, you'll enjoy, I think, hearing about that just as much as you will uh, NXT, which uh, is putting $275 million of uh, Deerfield's money to work. So please enjoy this conversation with Stan. But before I let you go, I need to remind you that the MedTech Conference is happening on May 29th and May 30th. You need to go to medtechconference.com to register. And because you are one of my favorite MedTech Talk listeners, you can use the MedTech Talk code and save yourself $200 off the already discounted price. And it will remain discounted until the end of March. But don't wait. Join now. Register now. Go to medtechconference.com. Now let's hear from Stan Rowe. Stan Rowe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. So you're leading an exciting new venture called NXT Biomedical, which uh, you've, you're proudly uh, proclaiming or claiming the incubator tag, which uh, not a lot of groups tend to do. <laughs> they tend to come up <laughs> with some other nifty way of explaining what they're doing. But I, I want to get into uh, your mission and your function in a moment, but we always like to start off with uh, just a little bit of a, a history. How did uh, Stan Rowe find his way into the medtech industry? Well, I started in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, I worked at Johnson & Johnson for about six years. I did uh, sales, and then I did uh, clinical research, developing new anesthetic drugs. And I really enjoyed that work, and I learned a lot. But I kind of decided that uh, pharmaceuticals were boring for me. Uh, because all you can change is really the dose of administration and route of administration, you know, concentration. And um, there was just little creativity in that process. Whereas I thought in medical devices, the rules of engagement are the um, the laws of physics. And so uh, it, it allows you a lot more freedom to create new therapies. And um, that seemed very attractive. So how did that uh, that shift come? Was it just a job opportunity that came your way or was it a conscious decision that I'm going to go into med tech and now I'm going to go look for an opportunity? Yeah. So I, I was looking for med device and I um, started in product management, which is a really good place to start because you get kind of a view of the whole life cycle of a product from uh, manufacturing through sales, um, including R&D pricing strategy, the whole thing. And I did product management for quite a number of years, ended up as a uh, director of marketing at Cordis when they wanted to get into interventional cardiology, which was um, kind of an early uh, stage of, of development of that technology and a uh, great opportunity for me to kind of get in a, at the ground floor and uh, did that for a number of years and then left and went back to Johnson & Johnson to manage the Palmeshat Stent Program, which was uh, top grossing medical devices ever launched. I think we did $650 million our first year of sales. Wow. And we were in back order for almost the whole time. You were a, a hell of a marketer. 
Well, you know, again, it wasn't marketing in the sense of promotion. It was marketing in the sense of developing a market, developing a product, um, validating it. So it was everything from, you know, manufacturing R&D and, um, and clinical trials and FDA approvals and all of that. So um, great opportunity to learn uh, in that devices to do that. And I went from there into kind of back in the R&D phase. Uh, so then I, I did, after we launched it, I did advanced technology for J&J and, I, and business development. So I started looking at, you know, um, radiation and, and drug elution. Nobody thought about drug elution at the time. So since I had a pharmaceutical background, the idea of drug elution made a lot of sense. So I hired... Uh, actual pharmacologists to come in and work on this and, um, you know, work through things like local kinetics and, and uh, second-order kinetics of, of drug elution off of stents. And that was the platform that ended up being, um, you know, the Serolumis uh, cipher stent. Uh, but I left before that was launched. Um, but I did get introduced to percutaneous heart valves at that time. And uh, oh, you were in the Netherlands, is that right? No, no, I was I was based in uh, New Jersey, mm-hmm. and uh, I got introduced to that um, through my friend Stan Rubinovich, and he was working in Europe uh, looking for new technologies. And I met Dr. Crivier, who actually at J and J decided to look at um, at this opportunity, but. When I left, uh, and Stan left, and a lot of other people left after the integration, you know, J&J bought Cordis, tried to integrate the two. The integration was pretty bad, and a lot of the top management left. Um, this project of a percutaneous heart valve just, you know, it, it was dead in the water. They were trying to integrate, you know, 100 projects in Cordis and 50 projects in J&J and this was some crazy idea that fell off the table. Well, we went and picked it up uh, later and formed percutaneous valve technologies and developed the very first percutaneously delivered um, aortic heart valve, which was um, an awful lot of fun. And I want to talk about PPT in a moment. I'm curious, did you feel more comfortable uh, on the science side, you started out in science, you went over to the business and, 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 and sort of operations side and then went back to R&D where you could stretch your, your research muscles again. Uh, did one feel like uh, home field versus the other or were you comfortable in both? No, I, I mean, I don't see these as silos. I mean, I think that, you know, um, most products fail not because they fail technically. They fail because people don't understand customer requirements or they don't understand competition or they don't understand, you know, what they're capable and and good at doing. And so I think R and D needs to, uh, for it to be really effective, it needs to flourish in that environment of understanding your competition and your capabilities and your strategy and all those things. And Mm -hmm. if you don't do that well, um, the R and D effort itself will not be productive. So it needs they need to know one hand needs to know what the other is doing, and one needs to know where the opportunities are for the business. Yeah, I mean, uh, what R and D engineers can do is fantastic, uh, but 
uh, they they don't define the product or the product performance characteristics that mm-hmm. are necessary to be successful. Uh, that's where you need a lot of business input and strategy input. And I think that's why many companies are not very effective at R&D. Interesting. I was going to ask, on a, broadly, on a broader industry basis, do you see the relationship between engineering and the business side improving? Is there better communications between the two? Do they operate more in sync? Or is it a company-to-company sort of, uh, sort of situation? You know, I've lived in companies that had standalone R&D units that are kind of separate from what everybody else is doing. And, you know, sometimes they've come up with some brilliant things, uh, but many, many times they flounder and they develop things that people don't want or don't need or don't fit. And that's where that alignment is so critical. And I think you need early stage marketing. You need great communications with business leaders to ensure that R&D is well aligned with every other part of the organization. You have to be able to manufacture it. It needs to be the right quality standard. It needs to be at the right cost. It needs to meet regulatory requirements. It needs to meet um, medico-economic requirements. If you walk through all of those requirements, R&D needs to be incredibly well-connected to be efficient and effective. Yeah, that's always a challenge just in, in operating med tech conferences to, to to draw from that pool. The engineering pools always seems to be a challenge. They don't seem to be, at least with the conferences I've run, which are more investor conferences, they don't plug into sort of the early stage entrepreneur side of the industry, at least in these, in, at least not attending these types of conferences. And I often wonder why I think they would benefit from seeing how others are, are indeeing. Well, yes, and and part of the problem is I think a lot of management of R and D may not recognize all those benefits, and they want their biomedical engineers to be great at biomedical engineering. Go, go do that. Um, I, I have a very different view, and that is that um, I want my R and D engineer to understand the market and the medicine and the competition and the regulatory and quality requirements and work efficiently and effectively with quality regulatory and manufacturing. And then they can be great biomedical engineers. Well, I, I could go on more about that, but I do want to talk about, uh, I think the, the, it's, it's just, I, I don't, I enjoy the sort of dynamics of, of company operations, but let's talk about uh, percutaneous valve technologies. How did you become CEO of this, uh, of, of that company? And was being CEO on your uh, career bucket list? Was it something you were intending to do, or was it accidental? Um, no, I, I I was happy to pick up that mantle in a small startup that was you know founded in my bedroom. It's not very intimidating, but <laughs> <laughs> as it grows, it as it grows, it does become uh, you know you, you feel the weight of responsibility. I'll put it that way. At least my view of being a CEO is that I was responsible not only to the shareholders who put their faith in me and put money into the company, but every employee who's, who signed in to be a part of the journey that I felt responsible to them and their families that we'd be successful. And it's uh, it, it's a big burden if you, if you view your role that way, and uh, especially knowing the odds of being, what, 
one one in ten maybe really succeeds. So um, it was it was scary, uh, but um, I also felt that it was worth it. I guess I'd been asked to be, you know, part of the top management of quite a number of startups, and I never really pulled the trigger on it because the risk benefit had to make sense. And this is one where I thought this could really, really benefit patients. I don't know if we can make it work, but if we do, it'll be worth the ride. You know, the, and this is where doing disruptive big innovation is, to me, so much more interesting than doing incremental innovation. The people who want to be second and third to the market, well, that's great. They may make a better mousetrap, but that's just not very interesting for me. I want to do the big hard ones, and that that's what makes life interesting. So, the, so the risk benefit is not to you as a as a, someone building a career. Not you know, this is my career upside or downside. You were really looking at the risk benefit of of the product itself. Well, it's the the benefit to patients, the impact on medicine, and the benefit to patients was worth the risk of putting your career on the line. Hi, this is Tom. We're going to take a very quick break to uh, tell you a little bit more about the MedTech Conference. We've already told you that our keynote speakers are Ashley McAvoy of Johnson & Johnson, which, of course, will be mentioned in this podcast. But uh, we're also very fortunate to have Kevin Lobo of Stryker. So we have two really great keynotes. Among the panels we'll have, and you can see them all at uh, medtechconference.com, is an early stage panel called Launching Companies in the Current Environment. It's being moderated by Andrew Cleland, and uh, it's a uh, really fascinating look at uh, how corporations and VCs are uh, working to create new companies. So this is a very relevant conversation to the podcast we're having now. In fact, Stan initially was going to sit on that panel, but he unfortunately had a conflict and couldn't make it. So I'm glad we had him on this podcast. And uh, you need to go to medtechconference.com to uh, make sure you uh, register to attend the MedTech Conference, which is happening on May 29th and May 30th in Minneapolis. Now let's get back into this conversation with Stan Rowe. In starting a company, someone who develops an idea for a new company, a business, not a MedTech business, but a business where the entire company is a concept, and they execute on that idea and they build this company, and it's all sort of centered around their concept of a market Curious as to what is the experience like when you're the CEO of a med tech company where you're you obviously need to push the right buttons and pull the right levers as CEO, but so much depends upon the technology and whether or not it works. Is there a feeling of powerlessness there that you could do everything right as a CEO, but if the tech doesn't work, you're dead in the water? Interesting uh, question. Yeah, I always say that. You know, you can really simplify the R&D process in, in two distinct questions. And the first one's pretty easy. Does it work? Does your product work? And that, that one is kind of a binary. Yeah, it, it does what we intended. The second one is the hard one, and that is, does it work well enough? Well, well enough for what? Well enough for physicians who use it to be you know, really enthusiastic about it, well enough that it convinces regulators, well enough that you can you can get the financial support that you need to further develop it, well enough that that 
people want to pay for it, you know? And so that's the hard part is uh, what is that threshold that it's competitive and compelling and worth paying for? Um, and sometimes you can figure out the, it doesn't work fairly quickly, but does it work well enough? Um, it can be much harder to, to figure out. Unfortunately, well, it, it, it did work well enough and you were, uh, PVT was acquired, uh, by Edwards. Uh, what was that, uh, what was that experience like having company you, you created in your bedroom suddenly, uh, acquired by a much larger company and, and a company with, with which you remained at that company to, to continue to lead the effort. But what was the, the acquisition experience like for you? <laughs> well, we could spend a whole podcast on that one. All right, because, that'll be um, the sequel. Yeah. If, you, uh, <laughs> if you remember, uh, so I had Johnson & Johnson, uh, Boston Scientific, and Medtronic all sitting on my board, and then I sold it to Edwards. So the dynamic was pretty, uh, pretty crazy. Sounds like Thanksgiving um, dinner at but, some uh, angry relatives' house. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but you know, Edwards ended up being great acquirers. You know, they had to borrow the money to basically buy the company, and um, and it's it's so fit into their strategic capabilities, their strategic window. It's like if this is going to be disruptive technology, we need to control it. Otherwise, we'll we'll be the disrupted ones. So they really bought into the kind of Clayton Christensen idea of disruptive technology. And um, I think they were, many people were uncertain as to whether it would work within AdWords. But uh, Mike Masalem, the CEO, was was committed to trying to make this work and was a great partner in the development of this technology. And even when things were tough, you know, we made corrections and uh, and moved it ahead. And it took a lot of perseverance on Edwards' part to to make this the product that it's been for them. And, and you stayed at Edwards for for fifteen years, or yeah, fifteen years. Um, is that? I mean, that's an unusual track for a startup CEO who's acquired, or you may stay for a few years and then move on to something else. Uh, what was that transition like? Being a, an being obviously chief scientific officer and, and you're a corporate vice president. So you were certainly higher up on the, on the website and toward the front of the website page. But what was that like staying in a larger company? And, and why did you choose that path? Why not look for another startup opportunity? Well, I started with the idea of, I, you know, I want to see this to the end. I really, you know, I want this to be on the market, helping patients. And I wanted to do my, my job to try to make that happen. So we did, you know, uh, Stan and I and a bunch of the other folks from TBT just stayed on to to really make this dream a reality. But then the question changed a little bit for me, and that was um, this idea that big companies can't innovate. And I I have fun giving a presentation on this, but the idea uh, I had was, well, could we actually just turn this kind of experience we've had into an entrepreneurial activity within Edwards mm-hmm. and demonstrate that big companies can, in fact, innovate. So that was kind of the second phase of my career, if you will, at Edwards. And that was, could we create this entrepreneurial unit? We called it Advanced Tech uh, that had a lot of engineering capabilities and create an environment where we could 
be the feeders of R&D to the business units. And we succeeded in developing a, a series of really important products for Edwards, and it was uh, just a, a great ride to develop that and um, and I think demonstrate that big companies can innovate. What do you think were one or two, maybe two, let's say two important um, things that you did that made Edwards a better a more innovative company. What were what were some changes you made either to staff or to approaches? So I actually believe that sequestering an R and D group that has an integrated um, strategy with a company, in other words, it has early stage marketing and strategy. We had our own clinical research group. We had our own regulatory people. We had our own pilot manufacturing group. So we were capable of of developing things that, um, I mean, and sometimes the business units, we were out in front of them, if you will, where they said, no, we don't really need that. We don't want that. And we said, well, thanks for that input. And we kept developing it and developing it. And then they got to the point, man, that's pretty darn interesting. You need to (laughs) shift this over here. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, so we developed things uh, that, you know, I, I called it an adoption agency, right? Our job was to create products that the, the business wanted to adopt. And, um, and so that, you know, that's a lot of fun. And it, and it, you have to have a culture that allows you to kill projects is the key thing, Tom. Um, I think a lot of the risk taking in big companies is difficult because, you can't kill project, projects without killing people's careers or, you know, you you can't have timelines that are not very predictable because you're doing real innovation and it's hard to predict real innovation. You have to be allowed some real flexibility to do innovation in a big company. And most big companies are not considerate of those things. They want, tell me what your budget is. Tell me what your timeline. If you don't meet it, you're not doing a great job. Mm-hmm really hard to do innovation under that circumstance. And by the way, you know, when we kill a project, you're fired. Well, that doesn't work either because, you know, you, you want to be able to say to people, you did your job. You know, if one in 10 startups succeeds, really, what should, what's a good batting average within a company, right? If half or if half your projects succeed, that's huge. But that means you killed half of them. And does the company allow you to do that, to do real innovation? Sure. And, and you use an interesting word, sequestered. You're sequestering your team. Did you sequester it from the rest of the company and, and had it more fo- uh, aiming outward toward industry? Because earlier on, I got the sense that you thought the engineers should work more closely with the marketing team, with, with, with others in the company. So am I misunderstanding one point? The way we did it is, so Advanced Tech was a standalone, kind of almost a business unit. Um, so we were very outward facing, that is, with customers, but we were not, um, we didn't work at the, we didn't take the lead from the business units. We, they didn't come to us and say, we want you to develop these five things. We had the independence to say, we're going to develop these brand new products that no one's thought of. For Edwards, it's a pretty great job. Yeah, it really was, and, uh, <laughs> and I give Mike again, Mike Masalam, huge credit for giving us the freedom to do that. Which was, um, you know, I'm not sure how many CEOs would do that. 
Well, now you're, you've got a, another really cool job. You're, you're one of the, the leaders of NXT Biomedical, uh, which is a... Uh, yes. Let's, let's talk a bit about what NXT is. At the top, I suggested that you were, you were, <laughs> you were embracing the incubator tag, so good for you. Right. But uh, tell us a little bit about the company and how you came, came to be involved. Well, this is my stupid idea of retirement. Um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I uh, spent a lot of time traveling and working at Edwards, had a great time there, and uh, I have huge respect for that company and the management team there. Um, but my idea of retirement was still to have a kind of a workshop where I could still work on great ideas. Um, I, I have a, a physician partner I've done a lot of work with named Dr. Rob Schwartz at Minneapolis Heart Institute, and he and I are kind of dangerous together in intellectual property and uh, bounce a lot of ideas off of one another. And I thought this would be a great outlet for it. So there are kind of two different kinds of incubators. One kind incubate small companies, you know, getting them ready for funding or their milestones or, you know, kind of facilitating their early development. And I think the other kind of incubator, um, and there are only a handful of them that I can name, are those that take ideas and spin them out into companies. And that's kind of what we do is, uh, is a little bit of a continuation of what advanced tech was, but with a slightly broader uh, scope. And that is we just want to solve big problems in medical devices um, with an early innovation process. And maybe what's unique about us is the partnership we struck with Deerfield Capital. And they were willing to put, kind of put the money up front to say, um, you know, we'll set aside $275 million and, um, and, you, you know, you'll have five years of operating expenses. And then as you spin out companies, we already have money set aside for them. And it gives me time to kind of, you know, socialize what the product is and the marketplace and all that with them so that by the time we reach a key milestone, they're ready to fund it with the money already there. So I don't, I don't have to spend time fundraising. And if you think about it, Fundraising is incredibly inefficient. It's inefficient on both sides. If you're a startup company, you probably talk to 50 or 60 uh, venture capitalists or, uh, to, to try to find a lead VC. And if you're a VC, you talk to, I don't know, 50 to 70 companies before you find one that you want to invest in. But that's, that's an incredible amount of wasted time and effort. So I think we're trying to circumvent that loss of uh, of output by just being focused on the R&D process, knowing that we have funding when we uh, develop really compelling ideas. So what is the source of the technologies that you'll invest in? And are you looking to build products or are you looking to build companies? So uh, thus far, everything's kind of been internal, uh, but you know, there's some combination of that that you know we're happy to reach out and grab IP or, you know, it, it, one of the things, for example, that we identified and and started doing some early work on when we started looking at the patent landscape, we found a couple of other people who were doing some early work, and I think we're going to partner with one of them to spin out one of our early companies. Um, so I think you, when you're doing this very early work, if you 
look around, sometimes you find people that can accelerate your your process. The source of ideas, most of them have been internal, but I always believe that the best ideas should win, and I don't care where it comes from. Uh, if there's a really compelling concept for a new therapy, then, um, you know, we want to hear about it <laughs> and we want to develop it. There seem to be different ways of, of coming up with new products. Uh, the, the biomed programs, they're sort of looking at the, the healthcare system, sending fellows out there to see where the shortcomings are in the hospitals. There are others right. like the folks at Caridia who, you know, would look at the body and see what kind of biological change we need to create and find a device or a, a mechanism that can do that. Are you looking more at what technology is out there and what the applications are for that technology, or are you looking at one or the other, at the, the hospital or the or the body? I tend to be the guy that sits in these um, medical meetings. I think I've gone to an average of, I don't know, so somewhere between 10 and 12 medical meetings a year for 25 years. And um, I'm the guy that's sitting in listening to uh, lectures or visiting poster sessions. And I think what it takes is a small streak of nihilism to look at what medicine does and go, really, that's the best we can do? we got to do better than that. This is still a real problem and it's really impacting patients. And I think many of the patients who are underserved are difficult to see. I mean, I learned that in spades and uh, in transcatheter heart valves. I mean, if you went out and asked the effort, the experts in the field, the cardiothoracic surgeons, how many patients were not getting surgery, they would tell you, we treat them all. You know, we can treat a patient who's 90 or 100 years old successfully. How many patients do we turn away a year? One or two. We don't, you know, there's no such thing as a non-surgical patient. But, you know, no one asked the stupid question. And the stupid question was, why would I send a non-surgical patient to a surgeon? I mean, what do surgeons do? They do surgery. So a non-surgical patient never gets referred to the surgeon. And there's, you know, tens of thousands of them out there. They're just diffuse and they die of old age rather than their real cause of death, which is aortic stenosis. So um, I think the same is true of many things in medicine, that there are a lot of patients who don't have the best outcomes and they're underserved by the therapies that are offered them. And we could do better. And that's the nihilism and the objectivity that I think we can bring to improve patients' lives. So you have $25 million committed to... Uh, commit of, to invest over the next five years in, in what you say are cutting edge technologies. Are you looking again to to build companies around each of those that you will lead or you will find leaders for? What what does XT look like in in two or three years? No, so I think we're just a handful of of um, kind of select people who like to do this early stage work, and our job is to take it through early feasibility and spin it out. So what we will be doing is spinning out companies and hiring managers that will fill in um, and, and catch what we're spinning out post-feasibility. Do you then retain, well, I guess, when, when does Deerfield then become involved? Is that the, the other, do you 
250 million dollars of the 275 is that for follow-ons and for for supporting those companies down the line that money is set aside to fund those companies that are being spun out and johnson and johnson i think you know has, has also become a partner in this they've been they've been phenomenal partners in it so far they've offered a lot of support and services and i, I couldn't be more pleased with uh having them on board. And you're still, are you still an advisor at Edwards as well? Are they involved at all? Or? Yes, I am a uh, consultant to Edwards. I certainly am, am more than happy to help them in uh, any capacity that I can. So someone listening to this podcast, they have an idea that they think can be a product. Is there a way of communicating with you and, and soliciting your help and hopefully your capital? Yeah. So, uh, you know, so we're, you know, we're doing that early stage development. Again, what we, what we prefer to have is not, we don't want to bring in small companies. What we want to do is bring in really disruptive, impactful ideas into the company that uh, are compelling to develop. Um, And we're willing to do the tough ones um, that a lot of people don't, don't want to take on. So I, I think that's one of the things that differentiates us. And uh, yes, I can be reached uh, readily. Uh, you can see our website is nxtbiomedical.com and all of our uh, uh, connectivity is there. So this might be an, maybe something as uh, similar to the foundry where if you have a, a, a some research paper with maybe some early prototypes or something, and there's, we think if we do this, then this will happen. Can you help us develop that That's idea? Right. That That's that sort of thing. Yep. So yes. So this is a fun job too. This is this sounds really cool. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's uh, it's uh, the most fun I can have and still call work. Yeah. <laughs> so last question. Looking broadly at the early stage landscape in medtech, and this is a question that I'm sure you're asked a lot. But how have things changed? And uh, has, does that change, if there has been change, require this sort of integrated approach between a large private equity group, a large corporate investor in, 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 or corporation, and two uh, people who are or seasoned entrepreneurs? Is this sort of what it takes to, to find and create early stage opportunities in this, uh, this type of market? I think that's one way to do it. I mean, you know, startups form a lot of different ways. Um, and again, I, you know, I, give people a lot of credit to take the risk and and do the hard work that startups do. I think what we're trying to do differently is to spend almost all of our time on R&D and much less on fundraising, uh, because that's part of the really hard part of, of um, innovation today is finding that right financial partner that has, that, uh, has a shared vision for what your company can be. Um, what's changed, I think, in our environment predominantly is uh, reimbursement is much more of a challenge than it used to be. It's still not well understood what's required for a CMS approval, whereas FDA has become much more collaborative, consistent, and even though their standards remain very high, they're transparent. And uh, that makes them great partners, and I, I hope that CMS evolves to be much more like FDA has become over the years, which is uh, transparent and consistent and uh, and allows us to, to work 
kind of hand in hand to develop these new products because we need them as part of the ecosystem. And of course, the European environment has changed dramatically. And uh, I think the new standards over there are going to look a lot like FDA. And uh, we still have a lot to work out there. That's for sure. All right. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to uh, talking to you uh, when you have some progress to report. That sounds great. Thanks so much for your interest. Nice talking with you, Tom. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. A few things, if you would, subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already, make your friends and colleagues subscribe to the podcast because why wouldn't they want to listen to these conversations? I really enjoyed this one with Stan. And uh, we have many, many great ones coming. So uh, subscribe now. Finally, give us a ranking on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to. That really does help others find the podcast. And of course, be inspired to register to attend the MedTech Conference, which is happening on May 29th and May 30th in Minneapolis. May 29th will be our very first uh, opening reception. Everyone from the conference will be there. You'll have a great networking opportunity. And then you can start the day fresh on the 30th with a very full agenda that you can see at medtechconference.com. And once again, don't forget to use the MedTech Talk code to save yourself $200. Tune in next week. We'll have another really great tale of innovation for you on the MedTech Talk podcast. <laughs>